Thanks, Michael. Hey, good morning. How are you guys? Need another cup of coffee? Yeah, some of you, some of you do. I know you do. No, it's great to be with you. So glad you came out. Maybe an extra hour early this morning to be with us. Uh, like Michael said, uh, we are continuing a series that we kicked off last weekend called The Last Words of Jesus, where we're over the 40 days of prayer and fasting over this time of Lent leading up to Easter, we're going to be looking at basically seven different statements that Jesus said while he was on the cross. Seven different phrases. Sometimes they're actually only like one word in the original Greek. But, but seven different statements that he, he talks about while he was on the cross. And I, and I think it goes back to around the Middle Ages. There's, there's been a Christian custom in some churches where they would reflect on these seven statements on Good Friday. But we're going to slow it down a little bit. We're going to talk about each kind of statement each week leading up to Good Friday and then to Easter. And just, just kind of a, a little warning, you know, Today's talk and maybe a couple of the other ones leading up in the next couple weeks, they definitely are going to be a little bit, maybe a little more PG. You know, we're going to be talking about death today, which I know if you're a parent of little ones, you know, you may, may want to choose to go put your kids in child care, I mean, in their class or in the nursery. But, um, but it won't be too graphic of anything, but just wanted to let you know. But these seven statements that we're going to be talking about They aren't found in all four of the Gospels. Each writer tells the story of Jesus' death a little differently. Each one had their own perspective. And each one is thinking of a different audience that they're writing to. One of the statements is found identical in both Matthew and Mark. Three are found in Luke and three are found in John. And it's possible, of course, that Jesus might have said more than these seven statements on the cross. It's very possible. You know, uh, we just, these are just what we have recorded down. In the very last verse of his gospel, John admits that Jesus did and said many things that are not recorded in his book, and that if, he, if they would, it would fill up all the books of the whole world, that there was no way to write everything down. But as, as we read and study these seven statements, I think what we'll see is that Jesus was extremely intentional in what he chose to say, that it was planned out, that as Jesus hung on the cross and seconds turned into minutes and minutes turned into hours, it would have been harder and harder for Jesus to even breathe, let alone speak. You know, as, as his arms were stretched out and as gravity started to pull his body down, his diaphragm to, that would go up and down as we breathe in and breathe out, would have been harder for him to move that and to take in breath. So every single time he wanted to speak, he would have had to push painfully with his legs up on the stake that was in his, in his feet <gasps> to be able to take in a breath and then speak out loud. Because, so we know that everything that Jesus chooses to say at the end must have been really, really important to him to communicate. And that's because Jesus knows that what we choose to say at the end matters. It matters an awful lot, actually. You know, if you've, if you've ever had the sad but honoring and wonderful privilege of being beside a loved one just before they died, and you remember the last thing that you said to each other, you know, sometimes we say things, we say goodbye. Sometimes we say, I love you. Sometimes we ask for forgiveness. 
You know, sometimes we share really wonderful things, wonderful memories, but when we're given the chance, when both people know it's near the end, no one, neither side wastes time talking about trivial things or unimportant things. Jesus, Jesus didn't think, you know, dying on the cross, oh, I, gotta, I better remind them that I forgot to take out the trash, right? No, he's not going to waste his time with those things. He's going to say really, really essential things. So these last statements that Jesus was talking about are really important. And not only are they really important, they're things that Jesus had been preaching and teaching and demonstrating throughout his whole ministry. You know, for example, last week JT talked about the first statement where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. It's not as if this was the first time Jesus ever mentioned the idea of forgiveness. No, forgiveness was a major part of his whole ministry. Time and time again, he kept banging on this drum about forgiveness. In fact, that's the whole reason why he was dying on the cross, right? So that we might be forgiven of our sins. Jesus' last seven statements are a summary of some of the most important missional things that he came to do and teach. You know, Jesus gave a very first sermon, a much longer sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount, and he gave it elevated up on a mountain. But his very last and much shorter sermon was given and elevated up on the cross. So today, as we dig a little deeper into that last sermon, we're going to look at one of the things that Jesus said that occurred right after the statement that JT talked about last weekend. And that's where Jesus tells one individual this. In Luke 23, 43, he says this. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dig into this chunk of scripture. So Jesus... We're just so thankful. I'm so thankful for these last recorded words in the Gospels that you spoke right before your death. We pray that, that as we continue to dive into them and, and explore them over the ne- next you know, number of weekends leading up to Easter, that, um, that they would come alive to us, that they would awaken things in us, that they would encourage us and challenge us, humble us, and transform us. We ask for more of your presence as we continue here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to be looking at Luke uh, chapter 23. If you have a Bible and want to turn to there or a phone, and we're also going to have the verses up on the screen as well. Um, But we're going to start off a little bit further than verse 43 back. We're going to kind of set some context. Verse uh, 32. So it, it starts like this. Two other men both criminals, were also led out with him, Jesus, to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's the verse that JT talked about last weekend. And then they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, 
Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The three main individuals in this section of scripture are Jesus and these two other criminals. And on the surface, these three men appear to have a lot in common. They've all been convicted. They're all experiencing the worst punishment the Roman government ever inflicted on criminals. They're all in great pain. They're all struggling to breathe. And they're all about to die in a matter of hours or minutes. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever been a witness to this or not, where someone is experiencing immense pain, immense suffering, and very, it's very clear that death is very near to them. But death can make people do strange things in their last moments. You know, sometimes their insecurities come out, their fears, their their scared, they're panicked. Their pride can come out. But sometimes, sometimes, so can great courage and great confidence and supernatural peace. I've told this story once before, but a couple years ago, my wife, uh, Sarah and I and our kids were over at uh, her aunt's house swimming at her pool and it kind of turned into a, an impromptu neighborhood party like a bunch of the neighbors showed up and just we were meeting people and having fun and the kids were having a great time and it was, it was great and somebody came on at one point I was in the pool I remember and somebody came out of the out of the house and very in a very panicked manner was like I need help now and you could just tell from the tone of their voice that they were afraid Something was very wrong. So I got out of the pool, and me and a couple of other neighbors, we went in to see what was going on and what, what, how we could help. And, and, my, and Sarah's aunt's friend, Gloria, was in there really struggling to breathe. And we didn't know if she was having a heart attack or, or what was going on, but she was clutching her chest. She was gasping for air, and there was this panic on her face, not sure what was going on. And she tried to sit down in the chair, but that didn't help. And so we, asked, we encouraged her to lay down on the ground, and she lay down on the ground on her back and began to try to encourage her that we'd, we'd call 911, that the, the, you know, the paramedics were on the way. Uh, just try to relax, just try to breathe. And at first, at first, there was this great fear in her eyes, and understandably so. When, when a person really believes that they're going to die, it is, it's hard to predict how they're going to respond. In the story of the cross, these three men, Jesus and these two criminals, they all respond quite differently when they know they're about to die. If you want to go ahead and throw up this painting, you've probably seen a painting like this or maybe this exact one of Jesus depicted on the cross in the middle and the other two men, one on his right and one on his left. And there's probably a lot of things in this painting that aren't quite accurate uh, for example, the crosses probably weren't that tall 
They were probably only about six to eight feet tall, so they wouldn't be that high off the ground. But it gives us an idea of the proximity of these two criminals next to Jesus and gives us an idea of this story visually. So keep the, keeping this painting up, let's think about how Jesus responds in this passage. You know, he's been betrayed. He's been arrested. He's been beaten and tortured. He's been abandoned by most of his friends. You know, the crowd that was chanting Hosanna, which basically means save us, the week before is now either silent or some of them are, are shouting, save yourself and mocking him. And yet Jesus remains silent in arguing and defending himself. In fact, when he does speak, like we talked last week, he speaks forgiveness, not condemnation over them. And to his right and left, these two criminals, they could not have responded more differently from each other. The one criminal mocks him and in his panic says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. Oh yeah, and while you're at it, save us too. But he isn't repentant of his sins. He's just heard Jesus extend forgiveness to everyone and he doesn't respond to that. He doesn't take on that. He doesn't acknowledge and accept that he mocks him like everybody else. And I, I've been thinking about this, this first criminal this first, in this passage. You know, it's really easy, I think, for us to judge him pretty harshly. But if we're honest, I wonder if a lot of us wouldn't be tempted to think very similarly to him in our panic and fear. I'm sure Jesus' followers were watching this all playing out and thinking similar things. Like, Jesus, we've seen you heal people. We've seen you cast out demons. We've seen you raise people from the dead. We know you can get yourself off this cross if you wanted to. Just do it. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't eat. Jesus doesn't even answer the first criminal. He remains silent in defending himself. He remains silent in performing a miracle that he no doubt had the power to do. Now, traditionally, this first unrepentant criminal is usually depicted in artwork like in this painting to the left of Jesus or to our right as we're looking at the picture. And we see this artist in the painting chooses to show this first criminal's maybe panic or fear as he's, I don't know if you can tell, kind of broken his left foot free from his bindings, trying to get away, trying to break free, trying to save himself, trying to avoid his due punishment. But the other criminal, the second one, the one traditionally portrayed in most paintings to Jesus' right-hand side, like in this one or on our left, does not seem to be attempting to break free or avoid his punishment. And notice Jesus' head is tilted towards that man, towards his right, toward that second criminal as a way of showing his acceptance, showing the conversation that they're having together. Now, historically and scripturally, the right side of someone is, has been seen as a place of honor. You know, we read in the scriptures that it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus tells a story, a parable in the Gospel of Matthew where he, when he talks about when he comes back in his full glory and he's with the angels and he's sitting on his throne that, that he will divide the people like sheep and goats and that the sheep will know the shepherd's voice, his voice, and he'll divide the sheep to the right and the goats to the left. And the sheep will receive eternal life and the goats will not. 
the goats will receive eternal punishment. That's why we see the second criminal to the right of Jesus in that place of honor as one of the shepherd's sheep. Another thing that is interesting, though, is that in this account by Luke, the second criminal seems to always be defending Jesus. But the Gospel of Mark actually tells us that was not always the case. Mark tells us in Mark 15, 32, it says this, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. That apparently at some point in the timeline, in the story, at the beginning, both criminals were mocking Jesus. But somewhere, the second criminal has a change of heart. Somewhere, his heart softens towards Jesus. We don't know how long or short he's been silent in his insults, but we see clearly that something has changed in him, something has clicked when he speaks in verse 40 and 41. It says this, but the other criminal, the second criminal here, rebuked him, rebuked the first criminal. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Somewhere in the process of his own crucifixion, the second criminal has a spiritual awakening. He had seen Jesus not only resist the urge to curse everybody and condemn his insulters, but he actually forgives them. He's heard Jesus called God as Father, refer to God as Father, realizing this immense great intimacy Jesus must have had with God. And in this beautiful picture of justice and mercy together, like JT talked about last weekend a little bit, this criminal knew he has no defense. He knew that Justice was being done to him. He, he owns his crimes and his sin and knew his punishment was deserved. He doesn't try to appeal his case or ask Jesus to perform a miracle that would save him in this life like the first criminal does. And this quality is rare among humanity. Listen to what Bible scholar Tim Hughes says when referring to this Second criminal in this passage, he says this. Such a clear awareness of sin is a profound advantage over most of humanity. Most people live in a foggy world of ambiguity and relativism, falling in love with dark contours of their lives, convincing themselves their sins are noble and glorious, that their pride is actually dignity that their unwillingness to forgive is actually character. No such haze clouded this man's soul. Most people, most of us, I know myself included, you know, we're tempted to look at our own lives, look at our own sin through foggy lenses, thinking of them as not as bad as other people's, as, as ourselves not deserving of justice or punishment. Convincing ourselves that our sins, they're done with good intentions, you know, or motives, and, or, or, or and not deserving of death. We say things like, I wasn't trying to hurt my spouse's feelings by calling them that, or threatening to walk out on them. I was just trying to make a point. I didn't, it's not really a big deal. Or, I wasn't gossiping about my coworker. I'm just concerned about them, Right? And I just thought my boss should know that I'm probably the better person for that promotion. 
When it comes to our own sin and brokenness, we often justify it. It's like we live in this cloud of fog, like the first criminal, but not the second criminal. The fog had lifted. He could see his own brokenness compared to Jesus' amazing righteousness, and he feared God in all the right ways. When the first criminal, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders, they were full of pride. The second criminal, he instead was humble and poor in spirit. He experienced a kind of change that Jesus said at the very beginning of his ministry was absolutely necessary. In the very first sermon, in the very first line that Jesus ever gave, said, it was this, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're seeing that play out in this story. The second criminal had come to a place of being poor in spirit and spoke aloud with great humility and really great courage, lonely courage. When everyone else was either silent or mocking Jesus uh, from a place of cowardness, from a place of pride, the second criminal had great courage to admit his own faults. And then in in another great act of courage, he turns to Jesus in verse 42 and he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He doesn't say, remember my good works. You know, remember that one time I, I led, or lent my neighbor some kosher salt or something. You know, or, no, he doesn't say that. He doesn't talk about his good works at all. He knows that his sins far outweigh any good that he might have done in this life. And he apparently didn't do a lot of good based on where he was at. He doesn't even say, remember that I defended you at the last minute, Jesus. When nobody else spoke up, I defended you. You owe me. He doesn't say that. He simply and humbly asks Jesus, he says, remember me. Remember me. Would you be willing to show me mercy that I don't deserve and remember me? Every single human being, every single one of us, is represented in one of these two criminals. We're all sinful. We all have two choices, two options. And the choice is found in here, in our hearts. Whether we will be humble enough to ask Jesus to be our defender and ask him to be merciful and remember us, or whether we'll be prideful and try to defend ourselves or break ourselves free. And Jesus' silence to the first criminal says an awful lot. And Jesus' response to the second criminal says even more. Barely able to breathe and speak, Jesus would have painfully pushed himself up on the weight of that stake to take in a breath of air and then to turn to that second criminal and say, truly I tell you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is saying, yes, 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 yes. I will remember you. Notice the immediacy of that promise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Not a week, not a month, not a lifetime 
from now because you need to repay all the debt of a bad life that you lived, of a sinful life. Not some sort of, after some sort of purgatory time period or reincarnation time period, but today. Today. Can you imagine that despite that man's, you know, extreme pain on the outside, the kind of internal peace he would have experienced in that moment on the inside. A supernatural peace, a peace that cannot be bought, but can only be given. You know, this second criminal struggling to breathe, about to go in and out of consciousness, his legs about to be broken, about to die, experiencing all of that while on the inside, experiencing a peace that he'd never known before. In the instance that he passed from this life to the next, that, that internal peace, it never missed a beat. If you think of it, if you think about it, it still continues today as he's with Jesus. Now, there's an old legend. So this is not in the Bible. So it, it's probably not true. But, but there's this old legend that says that Jesus, when he was first born, and Joseph And uh, there was an angel that came to Joseph and told Joseph, hey, you need to go to Egypt. You need to flee to Egypt. So, and that part is in the Bible, by the way. But Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, when they flee to Egypt on the way, the legend says they stopped at an inn to rest, to, 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 to rest and sleep for the night. And that Mary went to the woman working at the inn and asked if she could have some water to bathe Jesus in, you know, to make him all fresh and clean. Nothing better than a fresh, clean-smelling baby, right? Nothing worse than a stinky, dirty baby either. (laughs) But the woman obliges her and says, yeah, sure, here's some water. And then this woman has a really unusual request. The legend says that, that this woman asked Mary if after Jesus was done, could she use the same water to bathe her own son who happened to suffer from leprosy, which the woman didn't have to ask her. She could have just done it. But Mary obliged her and said, sure. And according to the legend, as soon as that little baby, other little baby boy who struggled with leprosy went into the water, he was healed instantly. Now, why am I telling you in this legend? Well, the legend goes on to say that that little baby boy grew up to be the second criminal on the cross next to Jesus. Now, again, while this probably isn't true, I think it tells us something true about God and the character of God. And that's this, that even if we encounter Jesus in some powerful way, at some early point in our life, but we turn away from him, we, we live a life of sin. You know, we, 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 we live a criminal's life that, that even if at the very end we are humble and repentant in the very last moments of life, that Jesus wants to save you. He wants to remember you. He wants to be generous to you. For some of you, this is kind of like your story. Some of you had, as a young child, an encounter with God. You know, maybe in Sunday school or VBS or, you know, somebody told you about Jesus and and you had this experience. But then as you grew up, you walked away from him for a while. You know, you went and kind of did your own thing. You made some unwise choices. Maybe that led to some tough consequences. And and in those consequences, your eyes were awakened. The fog lifted. You met Jesus again. 
and you realized you needed to return to him and ask him to remember you again. It's important to note that no matter our story, no matter our sins, no matter our struggles, we can turn to Jesus at any point. At any point, we can ask him to remember us, and this will always be his answer. Yes. Yes, I will remember you. That's amazing news, isn't it? That's amazing news. That's what Jesus offers to you and to me, to everybody today. Today, right here today. Another thing that's really interesting about Jesus' statement is that he uses the word paradise, not the word kingdom. The second criminal said, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus could have replied, yep, today you'll be with me in my kingdom. But he doesn't say that. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Why does he choose that word? Well, the Greek word for paradise is paradisios, and it comes from the root meaning of garden. Garden. Jesus, this is something really, I think, theologically really profound about what Jesus understood what he was doing and who he understood he was. It it points us back to the very beginning, to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when before there was sin, when everything was right with God, when everything was right, when there was no sin, when, when there was perfect peace and perfect health and everything was wonderful. It also points to the future. It points to the future at the end of the Bible, not just at the beginning, but at the very end. In Revelation, it says this. In Revelation 2.7, Jesus says this. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God, which is in the garden of God. Same word here, same Greek word. Jesus remembers and saves those who find victory in his death and invites them to eat from the fruit of the tree of life. If you keep going in Revelation, in the very last two chapters, it talks about this restoring of the garden, this restoring of Eden, this paradise being made wonderful, made new. A paradise that is far beyond any paradise that we have that exists today in this earth. Jesus' clear understanding of the bigger picture of what he was inviting us all into uh, is quite amazing. Now, if I'm being totally honest, while this is all awesome, there's a little part of me that struggles with Jesus' response here. That that this, that this doesn't seem fair, Jesus. Like this guy was a, really one of the blatant worst criminals and you're just gonna let him off the hook? You're just gonna let him free? That's not fair. But like I said earlier, this is not some new idea that Jesus just throws in at the very end. This is something that he has been trying to communicate about the kingdom of God from the, the whole time of his ministry. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells a parable, a story about a vineyard and a, a, an owner of this vineyard who goes out early in the morning to recruit workers to come work in his field. And he says, I'll pay you one denarius, one day's worth of wage, basically. And so he hires a few people. And then around nine o'clock in the morning, he goes and he, he goes and get, they apparently started really early, uh, but he goes and he gets a f- few more workers. And then at noon, he goes back and he realizes there's still people standing around doing nothing. So he, he says, come on, I'll pay you one, one denarius too. 
And at three, he gets a few more. And at five, even five, they're going to quit at six. They only got one hour left of work. But he says, I'll pay you one denarius too. And so, so, so they do that. They work. And at the end of the day, he goes out to the field and he starts to give each individual the same amount. And of course, the workers who started at the crack of dawn are like, well, this is, this is not fair. I worked through the heat of the day. This guy just stood around and did nothing most of the day. You're going to pay him the same thing? And look what, look what the owner says in Matthew 20, uh, verse 13. But he answered one of them, am I not being unfair to you, my friend? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus says, I want to do this. I want to give the one who was hired last the same that I gave the one who came and worked first. I want to be generous. That's what Jesus is saying to the second criminal. That's what he's saying to us. This is amazing news. It's amazing news that no matter where you are at with God today, no matter what you've done in the, your past, it's not too late. It's not too late. It's also not too early. It's not too early to invite Jesus to take the punishment of your sins off you and put them on himself. To ask and humbly ask Jesus to remember me too. Would you remember me too? And to experience the same peace the second criminal would have experienced in the last few moments of life, we can experience that confidence and peace now and for every day forward. Thinking about stories where it's, it's not too late and how we might walk away from Jesus, but he never walks away from us. Uh, back in the 80s and early 90s, there was a comedian by the name of Sam Kinison. He was nicknamed Bad Sam, kind of known for his really high, high screaming profanity, talked about women in inappropriate ways a lot. Does any of you remember him or watch him? Yeah, okay, yeah. You all went to the top of my prayer list. Um, I guess I should be on the top of your prayer list if I knew him though too, right? Uh, you tricked me, Andrew. I'm never raising my hand again. No, uh, definitely just warning you. Uh, if you look him up, be warned. Uh, but Sam Kinison was actually born the son of a Pentecostal preacher. And he was actually a preacher himself in his late teens, early 20s. And in his mid-20s, he went through a really rough divorce. He really struggled afterwards. He, he kind of caused, disrupted his faith. He walked away from God. And he, and he turned, really, um, and he became a professional comedian, which I, that's not, I'm not saying anything against comedy. But, uh, but in 1992, Sam Kinison was on his way to perform a show when he was hit head-on by a teenage drunk driver. And his crew had been following, driving along behind him in a different vehicle. And they saw this whole terrible crash. They pulled over right away and they rushed to help him. And Sam was very badly injured on the outside and internally on the inside, it would be discovered later. And that he did not have but a few seconds, maybe a minute, a couple minutes to live. But when the, his friend rushed up to the car to try to help and to check on him, he said that Sam was having a conversation with somebody that could not be seen. That he was 
talking out loud and then almost like pausing and listening in response. That Sam said things like, I don't want to die. I I don't want to die. And then he would pause for a minute. And then he asked, but why? And then after a really long pause, he said, okay, okay, okay. And his friend who overheard this conversation, you know, said that the tone of the very last okay was one of almost supernatural peace. Sam was 39 years old, very young man. Sam had walked away from God for much of his short adult life, but in the end, he had a conversation with Jesus again and received the mercy shown the second criminal. Earlier, I started to tell you a story about a woman named Gloria and how I was one of the few people who was with her when she thought that she was dying. Well, the truth is that she did die that day. She died a few minutes later. She stopped breathing and her heart stopped beating. Sarah's aunt started to breathe into her mouth while I alternated giving her chest compressions to try to get her heart going again until the EMTs got there. They continued to try to resuscitate her, but they weren't able to. It was later diagnosed that Gloria had experienced a pulmonary embolism, a large blood clot stuck in her lung that was preventing oxygen from getting to her body. And it really would have been short of a miracle, impossible for any of us to do anything. There was nothing to be done to save her. Jesus didn't save her life that day. Just like he didn't save the criminal's life on the cross. But in the last moments before she was unconscious, I looked into her eyes and I said, you're going to be okay, Gloria. Because Jesus is right here. And despite all the chaos, there was this deep sense and look of supernatural peace in her eyes at the end. Where there had been fear in her eyes before, at the end, there was great peace. What an honor it was to tell her grown children that her, at her funeral. I've ne- I never had met them previously. That she was at peace in her last moments. And when I told them that, all they could talk about was how much she had loved Jesus for a long, long time. Gloria lived most of her adult life walking with Jesus. Sam Kinnison did not. He seemingly walked back to Jesus only in the last few seconds. But in the end, they both received the same wage. They both received the same denarius. They both received the same gift. A supernatural peace and assurance that Jesus remembered them and had a place for them in paradise. Luke's account of the cross isn't a story of a good criminal. Oftentimes, this second criminal is thought called the good thief or the good criminal. But actually, it's a story of a sinful criminal and a good, good savior. Listen, if you're here today and you would say, that kind of peace you're talking about, I don't have that kind of peace. I don't have that kind of confidence that Jesus showed that second criminal, the kind of peace that Jesus gave Gloria and Sam, 
I want you to know that you can have that peace, that assurance, that experience today. The last words of the great astronomer Copernicus as a prayer to Jesus were this, as he, as he prayed, or as he said at the very end, he said this. I do not ask for the grace you gave St. Paul, nor do I dare ask for the grace you granted St. Peter, but the mercy which you did show the dying robber. That mercy, would you show that to me? That's the kind of mercy that we can all ask Jesus to show us right now, right now. Let's just take a few minutes here and kind of quiet ourselves before we end. I just have a sense that Jesus is inviting us to spend some time with him, that God might want to speak to us a little bit. So we're just going to kind of dial down. You might want to close your eyes so you're not distracted. You want to open your hands, you can't, but you don't have to. Just a posture of receiving from God. Let's just take a minute and just respond in our hearts to what God might be doing. Sometimes God invites us to kind of imagine ourselves in the story. So that's what I want to do here. I want you to Imagine that you're in the place of the second criminal. I want you to put yourself in his place. I want you to ask, you know, where are you hardened toward God lately? Where have you gone astray lately? Where have you sinned and maybe justified it? I want you to ask ask God to, to soften your heart. To lift the fog, to see your own brokenness clearly, but to see his awesomeness even more clearly. And if anything comes to mind, it's not because Jesus wants to condemn you, it's because he wants to save you. He wants to free you. So you, so be honest with him. you to ask him in your mind to remember your sins no more but only to remember you say remember me Jesus now listen Listen for his encouraging words. 
listen to his words of assurance. Receive his supernatural peace. Let your fears and worries go. we said at communion hear Jesus say I choose you I will remember you someday you will be with me in paradise Let me show you how to experience glimpses of that paradise now. Let that truth sink deep into your soul. Let it be anchored on rock. Let that confidence, confidence in nothing you've done, but only what he's done, settle and go deep. Amen. You can open your eyes now. Did some of you sense God speaking to you in that moment? If you ask Jesus to remember you, maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, you know, I, that's a really big deal. That's a really big deal. So would you do me a favor on the Connect card? There's this spot on our Connect card where you can check off on the white side where it says, I gave my life to Jesus for the first time, or you can just make a note if it's maybe second time or whatever. Would you fill that out and turn that into the, there's a box on the info counter in the lobby. That's a really big deal. We'd love to just reach out to you and encourage you um, and just give you some stuff to help you in your walk with him. But I want to end with this. We got a couple minutes left. Why don't we stand up?